If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When Mehmed VI, the last sultan of the Ottoman Empire, was ejected from power in 1922, one of world history's great powers finally collapsed. But what caused the fall of this once mighty empire? It's a question that Ryan Gingeras addresses in his book, The Last Days of the Ottoman Empire, and also considered in a feature for a recent issue of BBC History magazine. Here, talking to our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Ryan reconsiders the events of a century ago. So Ryan, your feature in the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine begins with something of a, a, a mournful scene. It describes the coffin of the final Ottoman sultan, Mehmed VI, being borne by boat to its final resting place in Syria. Now, as the boat makes its way across the Mediterranean, Mehmed's son-in-law reflects on all the lands the Ottoman Empire had ruled over for centuries before it collapsed in 1922. Now, Ryan, just to set the scene I just wonder, at its height, can you tell us how powerful was that empire? You can't understand the the making of the modern Middle East. You can't understand the making of Southeastern Europe, North Africa, as it manifests today without having a deep appreciation of Ottoman history. And you can find expressions of the importance of the Ottoman Empire in so many different ways, whether you you find it in the political development of these regions, social institutions that many of which endure to this day, things like language, you know, cuisine, they're they're all, you know, all of these things, these expressions of culture are based in Ottoman precedents. You know, in terms of things like power and influence, if you were to think about the height of European politics in the, the makings of modern Europe, uh, let's say, you know, during the 16th, 17th, and, you know, even the 18th century, um, the Ottoman Empire figures really prominently, even though it's oftentimes not depicted as such, it's not understood as such. 
it is a fundamental European state in that it is an actor that shapes the interests, uh, the antagonisms, the relations between various European states, you know, during this fundamental period of time. Now, my book, however, you know, we are introduced to an Ottoman Empire that is very much not a major power in the sense that one would typically think of it. It's a state that is beginning to withdraw from very portion, various portions of its former territories. It's in a country very much down on its luck economically. And there's a real sense of uh, a foreboding in the country, you know, by the time, you know, we, are, we, we get to the opening stages of, uh, of the story I want to tell in this book. And we've got this quite well-known phrase, which is the, the sick man of Europe. When did cracks begin to appear in Ottoman supremacy? Uh, and why was that? When, wh- why did it begin to, to fade from its former glories? Well, it, you know, the phrase sick man of Europe is a phrase that comes from the early 19th century, and it comes as a result of the crisis that envelops the, you know, what we now remember as the Greek War of Independence. And this phrase comes as a result of really a culmination of different trends. The first one is really a, you know, the culmination of a real waning in the ability of the Ottoman Empire to wield military power. You know, it's at one point its navy really dominated the Mediterranean. Its land forces obviously had conquered a great deal of territory and even continued to threaten various territories within Central Europe into the late 17th century. By the time we get to the 1800s, this is no longer the case. You know, the Ottoman Empire had been in retreat. Its navy had really begun to decline as as a potent force. I mean, there are other attributes of this too that really begin to add greater significance to the phrase, you know, sick man of Europe, which I should say is very much a, a European expression. And, you know, among them is the fact that the country by the early 19th century, had begun to experience a great deal of social and economic upheaval as well. The Ottoman Empire is at war almost uh, without pause through the 1700s. And as one could imagine, I mean, this does terrible things to one's treasury. It does terrible things to things like social stability in various parts of the empire as you know, the empire is constantly demanding more and more in the way of taxes, more and more in the way of men and animals to be sent to the thr- to the front, and these sorts of things not only you know leads to decline in you know let's say standards of living, but it it degrades what many people see as the legitimacy of the Ottoman state. Now it just so happens that this also occurs amid the beginnings of something like the age of nationalism, and that the beginnings of something like national movements, the, the, the cultivation of national identities really uh, begins to become, become intertwined with these social and economic challenges within the Ottoman Empire. And so as a long story short, we get uprisings. You know, in the early 19th century, we have an uprising in the lands of what is today Serbia, and then, you know, perhaps more profoundly in what is today Southern Greece. And the product of these uprisings are the demands of independent or separate states from the Ottoman from the Ottoman Empire. And you know, these challenges are further aggravated by the intervention of major European powers. And so, you know, major European powers come to understand by the early 19th century that the Ottoman Empire represents 
an entity that straddles a very strategically significant part of the world, right? It's this territory that is halfway to Asia in particular by this point in time, you know, kind of sits between Great Britain and the colony of India. And so, you know, this is a territory that is understood to be of great value to these ascendant states in Western Europe. And the fact that the Ottoman Empire cannot resist or is unable to defeat either rebellions or the intervention of Western states. I mean, this is a thing that promulgates this idea that the empire is somehow infirmed and perhaps even kind of at death's door. And the term in itself, you know, is inspired by the fact that the potential death of the Ottoman Empire, the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, you know, would bring about not simply, you know, kind of internal chaos to the lands that the, the Sultan rules, but more importantly, could provide a spark for conflict between the great powers of Europe. So in this respect, you know, the idea of a great of the sick man being the Ottoman Empire is recognition that European states must be attentive to and perhaps take advantage of the fact that the Ottoman Empire has fallen on such hard times. Now, in your feature, you really take up the story at the beginning of the 20th century. And a huge moment in the story is the emergence of the Young Turks and the Young Turk Revolution. I wonder if you could tell us a little about the Young Turks. Who were they and why was their rise to power so important to this story? Yeah, it's a, it's a really fundamental part of how and why the Ottoman Empire evolves the way it does during the early 20th century. You know, the Young Turks is a colloquial term. It's actually coined by the French press in the end of the 19th century for a political party, one could maybe call it more of a movement that whose formal name is the Committee of Union and Progress. And you often see it referred to as CUP as an acronym. The CUP was a movement that was formed by dissidents at the end of the 19th century who left the Ottoman Empire as a result of the abrogation of the Ottoman constitution and parliament that comes in the being in the middle of the 1870s. But suffice to say that in the summer of 1908, an uprising is engineered in what is today kind of the lands between the Republic of Northern Macedonia, uh, Northern Greece, an uprising that comes to be uh, memorialized as the so-called Young Turk Revolution of 1908. And this revolution forces Abdelhamid II, again, this you know, long-reigning sultan, to reinstate the constitution and permit an election in a reopened parliament. And this is an important bellwether moment because it marks a moment of real euphoria in the lands of what remained of the Ottoman Empire at this time, in a real sense that indeed state and society could come together and bring about a new deal for the empire as a whole. And, and there is a surge of real optimism for the future. But it is something of a false dawn in the, in the long term, because the Committee of Union and Progress you know, sees upon this movement, not simply just to reinstate the constitution, restate the parliament, but eventually to really take power. And they do so in a way that isn't quite authoritarian in nature, quite, I think elitist would be the wrong term in terms of tone, um, is actually quite oppressive in manner and, and quite chauvinistic in manner at times. And in particular, where we see the chauvinism is the belief 
that comes to really dominate the internal politics of this party, of this movement, that for the Ottoman Empire to survive, it needs to consolidate a sense of belonging, a sense of loyalty, and a sense of commitment among what they believe is the most dominant component of Ottoman society, which are its Muslims. And this comes at the expense of non-Muslims, and that non-Muslims in their mind essentially had a choice to make. Either they can go along with the CUP's plan, or they could stand aside, or perhaps worse. And so this becomes a really critical tension that defines the very last couple of decades of Ottoman rule. This attitude had some terrible consequences, didn't it? I mean, um, in the feature, you, you mentioned the deliberate mass killings of Armenians by Turkish forces beginning in the, the spring of uh, 1915. Now, this event has been widely called a genocide, though the Turkish government disputes its description. So I, mean, I wonder if you could explain to us what drove the killings and, and why the description, the labelling of this episode is such a bone of contention even today. Well, the Armenian genocide is the product of long-term tensions and arguably immediate contingencies that come about during the First World War. It's it's a product of long-term tensions in the sense that by the late 19th century, there is a state of real tension between kind of the, the most senior leaders of the Ottoman Empire principally the you know the sultan abdulhamid ii but also you know we could see this even sort of trickling down into this mid ranks you know as far as the mid ranks of you know the ottoman bureaucracy the ottoman military and by and large armenian civic leaders or a significant portion of Ar- armenian civic leaders and a large portion of armenian society and the tension boils down to this that armenians believe they deserve the right for redress specifically around issues of their personal safety. Where most Armenians live, there's a great deal of violence, you know, and exploitation, especially, you know, by landowners, by, as well as the upheaval as a result of conflict, greater amounts of national rights in the form of language, um, greater amounts of representation within the state, and, you know, a sense of real, uh, you know, kind of, of disenfranchisement as a result of the Ottoman Empire. And senior Ottoman leaders, and again, this is a a feeling that becomes ever more profound down into the ranks of the Ottoman bureaucracy and army, these issues of redress are viewed as expressions of betrayal. And when Armenian nationalists, you know, begin to organize uh, militant groups to try to force these demands upon the Ottoman Empire, and also sort of gain greater recognition from European states. I mean, this is sort of what touches off, a, you know, a real sense of betrayal within a significant portion of the Ottoman elite. Now, in some ways, you know, the Young Turk Revolution in 1908 is seen as a kind of remedy for this, okay, by both many Armenian civic leaders, but also significant portions of the imperial elite, okay, that including the Young Turks who saw that there could be some sort of rapprochement 
between Armenian political groups and the Young Turks. And in fact, between 1908, you know, to the very, the very beginning of the First World War, we see actually a great deal of cooperation between Armenian political leaders and the Young Turks on a, on a variety of different issues. And, you know, there is this, you know, at least some semblance of hope going into the First World War, just, you know, preceding the First World War, that this issue of representation, this, you know, kind of remedying issues of disenfranchisement could be laid to rest at long last. But one thing that we've, we discover, you know, when we look at, you know, the writings and the, you know, the records of the Committee of Union Progress and the memoirs of those who were its leaders is that there is this deep, deeply held resentment towards Armenians. And a sense that, in fact, this is not something that's going to be reconciled. And in fact, the Young Turks look at recent history, in particular, that, you know, preceding the First World War, the Ottoman Empire loses the Balkans, loses the Balkans as a result of the Balkan Wars. But in the way they see it, they the, the empire lost the Balkans because its Christian citizens in the Balkans demanded independence, had begun to turn their back on the Ottoman Empire, had, were essentially disloyal. And they see kind of the seeds of this sort of, you know, kind of process at play in lands where Armenians reside within the Ottoman Empire. And so when the First World War breaks out, it's very clear that there is a moment of catharsis within the Committee of Union Progress, which, you know, by this time, you know, exercises near di dictatorial control over the empire. And, you know, between the start of the, of the fighting and the winter of, of 1914-1915 and the spring of 1950, the, the senior leaders of the Ottoman uh, Empire, the Committee of Union Progress, decide to undertake this policy, you know, which they, you know, kind of euphemistically or broadly referred to it as a policy of deportation or tejir. Now, you know, in so many, you know, so in short, you know, what this policy entails is the mass expulsion of Armenians from their lands. And, and by the way, I mean, this is not just in places like Eastern Anatolia, where the bulk of Armenians are found, but these are places actually throughout the Ottoman Empire, as far away as the borders of Bulgaria. Armenians are deported to, by and large, the Syrian and Iraqi deserts. And, you know, in the process of the, of this, of these deportations, it is very clear that the party, the Committee of Union Progress government organizes a series of massacres, particularly of men along the way. And, you know, what we definitely get a sense of, you know, both by context, by virtue of the records of, let's say, the, you know, the German and Austrian governments who are the allies of the Ottoman Empire during the First World War, and from the witnesses themselves of people who are the victims, you know, and as well as people as among perpetrators, is that this is something directed by the government for the purposes of ostensibly liquidating the empire's population of Armenians for the benefit of the national whole. You know, and it was very much believed within, you know, the senior, among senior leaders in the Ottoman Empire, that with the Armenians gone, the government would be able to administer its territories better. Economically, the country would be stronger because Muslims would gain the economic benefits of these deported Armenians, whether it's their businesses or their lands, and that socially it'd be more cohesive. And it should be say, you know, kind of lastly and somewhat parenthetically that, you know, Armenians are not the only victims 
of these kinds of policies. Um, we see, you know, similar kinds of policies enacted towards Greeks, um, Ottoman Greeks in the western part of, uh, of Anatolia. Um, we see it even directed at Muslims, including Kurds and Arabs. Uh, I think one of the big differences is that we don't see massacres. But we do see not only deportations, but a kind of willful effort to thin the populations of these different groups, or at least a blatant disregard for the lives of those who are deported. But a sure shared hope that by virtue of trying to liquidate or thin out the populations, the country will be better off. It will be stronger. It would be spiritually revitalized as a result of these policies. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, all this happened to, um, as, as you mentioned, the background of uh, the First World War and the calamity of defeat in 1918 for the empire it obviously delivered a really damaging blow to the power of that empire. Indeed, some historians have argued that this was the event that rendered the collapse of the empire all but inevitable. However, you've got a slightly different take on events, haven't you? You argue in the feature that it was what happened after 1918 that truly consigned the Ottoman Empire to history. I wonder if you could elaborate on that, on that argument just a little bit, please. Yeah, I mean, this is the central focus of the book. The thing that I fundamentally try to achieve with the book is to get at what is a central paradox of the Ottoman Empire's demise. We often associate it, indeed, with the end of the First World War, and for and for some reason, for good reason, right? I mean, the Ottoman Empire is devastated as a result of the First World War. The death toll as a result of the war, not simply the fighting, but things like the Armenian Genocide, as well as things like starvation, disease, and so on, it leaves a terrible toll upon Ottoman society as a whole. And, you know, there's a, a real genuine sense of gloom and disillusionment at the end of the empire. And obviously, it comes at a time in which other empires are being dissolved or on the threshold of dissolution, whether you're talking about the Russian Empire under the Romanovs in 1917, the Habsburgs, the Hohenzollerns in, you know, are overthrown at the very end of the First World War in Germany. And so it seems appropriate to think about the end of the Ottoman Empire during this period of time, given the context. But the real truth of the matter is, when you zoom into the politics, and you look at the politics of the Ottoman Empire from the perspective of Ottoman citizens, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. You know, one thing that you discover is that there is still not only a sense of necessarily called optimism, but there is a, an expectation that the Ottoman Empire is going to survive in one way, shape, or form. And you see this, this view endure, you know, not only among elements of the Ottoman elite, but among broad cross-section of Ottoman citizens, you know, who re remain within the lands governed by the Sultan, you know, in the winter of 1918-1919. And the ultimate expression of this, uh, uh, of this expectation or optimism comes in the spring of 1919, 
when then victorious allies, you know, that you know, not only including Britain uh, and France uh, and the United States, but more more importantly, Greece, you know, that the victorious allies allow for the occupation of the city of Izmir or Smyrna on the western coast of Anatolia by the Greek military. And this touches off on a groundswell of popular indignation and a popular drive to evict the allies from the Ottoman lands. Now, you know, this sparks off uh, a renewed conflict, you know, something of a, you know, in many ways of a continuation of the First World War between the Ottoman Empire, or let's just say kind of what remains of the Ottoman Empire and the allies. Now, the irony here, or the paradox, is the fact that the remnants of the Ottoman forces win, right? You know, they're victorious by the fall of 1922. But it's at this moment of victory that, you know, leaders who would otherwise have been considered the foremost patriots of the Ottoman Empire, I mean, those who were the most loyal to the notion uh, and the spirit of the Ottoman Empire, it's at this moment they decide to dissolve it. Okay, and so the book takes the reader into the internal politics around this decision. And, you know, in short, you know, what I argue is that the decision to dissolve the Ottoman Empire comes as a result of a partisan dispute over whether the empire going forward would be led by the sultan who at this time is uh, Mehmed VI, or Mustafa Kemal, or, you know, Mustafa Kemal Pasha, who becomes, you know, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of the Republic of Turkey. And that there is a real sense of bitterness um, among the, the senior, you know, military leaders, in particular, of the Ottoman Empire towards the Sultan by, you know, the, the, the conclusion of this war and the fact that the Sultan was willing to negotiate with the allies, whereas the army was really more than anything desirous of fighting as a way of preserving the empire. And so, you know, by the time we get to 1922, with the conclusion of the fighting, these senior military leaders decide to unseat the Sultan and declare the empire dead. So there's an image, actually, which you ran alongside the feature, which shows the sultan being spirited out the back door of the palace at the very end of his reign. This looked like somebody who'd very much fallen out of favour with his people. Was he in some way now seen as a traitor by his own people? And if so, why had his fall from grace been so precipitous? Well, it's an interesting question because, you know, it, one should look at you know, kind of the end of the Ottoman Empire is not only the fall of a sultan, but of um, of a dynasty. And it's a dynasty that not only reigns as the territorial rulers of the Ottoman lands, but also as caliph of all Muslims, right? Sort of the vicar of all, uh, of all believers throughout the Islamic world. Now, Mehmed VI comes into power in the summer of 1918. You know, right at the very end of the war. And in a lot of ways, he personally benefits from the fact that at this point in time, the Sultan does not necessarily wield a great deal of direct power. But, you know, by the end of the war, the Community of Union Progress, which had ostensibly ro- ruled the empire for about a decade, not only had lost the First World War, had brought the empire into the First World War and then lost it and lost it rather fantastically. But they are widely seen as the architects of many of the calamities that befall the empire domestically, again, most notably the Armenian genocide. So you, you asked the question earlier about why the Armenian genocide is of such, is so profoundly 
debated, especially within Turkey, right? The reason is, is that at the very end of the war, you know, when the Committee of Union Progress concedes defeat, it dissolves itself and its leaders go into exile. And the reason why is that the Allies accuse the uh, Committee of Union Progress as a party guilty of war crimes. In fact, the, the phrase itself, you know, uh, crimes against humanity is coined during the First World War, and it is coined with relations to the Committee of Union and Progress and their treatment of Armenians. Now, when the war ends, this benefits Mehmed VI, or Mehmed VI of Ahadin, as he's known formally. And in fact, it, he gave an interview to um, the, the British newspaper, the Daily Mail, in the winter of 1918, in which he denounced the Armenian genocide and, and laid blame at the feet of the, of the Committee of Union and Progress. So, you know, this opens up the beginnings of something like a really profound partisan split within the elite, since so such a significant portion of the elite had endorsed this policy. And that more importantly, that society had turned so radically against the government as a result of the war, as a result of these policies. And Mehmed VI benefits from this. Now, where things get really, you know, that much more convoluted and controversial is that Mehmed VI decides that the best way to secure some kind of peace with the allies and to secure something like a future for the empire in and of itself as a state is to negotiate with the allies, in particular, rely upon Great Britain as an intermediator that would preserve Ottoman integrity or preserve Ottoman sovereignty. You know, the fact of the matter is, you know, Britain is rather disinterested in maintaining, you know, the full integrity of the state. In fact, you know, you know, as the victors hope to take advantage of the peace negotiations in order to secure territory and to secure a stranglehold over the region for geostrategic reasons. Now, when the Greeks invade Anatolia, this acts as a real lightning rod for the, the, what remains of the Committee of Union and Progress. You know, in fact, it allows what remains of the Committee of Union and Progress to really push aside a lot of the discontent that had really undermined the party and, and drove it to dissolution at the war's end and allowed it to put front and center in front of the population at large the issue of sovereignty. Do you wish to be ruled by the allies or do you wish to fight for freedom? And large numbers of people choose the latter. And so between 1919 and 1922, during the course of this fighting, Mehmed VI's positions begin, begins to erode, right? It begins to erode in the favor of those who seek to um, uh, evict the allies. And this is a movement that's, you know, kind of broadly known, colloquially known as the, you know, as the national forces. And this is a movement that is led by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. And so at the expense of Mehmed VI, you know, this movement, begins to gain in strength and really, you know, becomes something of a state within a state during the course of this period of time. All the while, you know, sort of maintaining at least, you know, nominally a loyalty to the Sultan and a dedication to the preservation of the Ottoman Empire territorially, as well as in name. But by 1920, there is this crossroads moment in which Mehmed VI signs a peace treaty with the Allies. This is the, the notorious Treaty of Sevres of 1920, uh, in which he validates the partition of the Ottoman Empire. And this is treat, treated as basically as a betrayal, you know, as the most fundamental betrayal that any ruler could make towards his people. And this sets the stage for ultimately for his overthrow. But not only that, it sets the stage for a real change 
in attitude among large segments of the population that the dynasty in and of itself cannot be trusted. Now, a, a massive figure in, in this period, and you've mentioned him a couple of times, is uh, Mustafa Kemal. What kind of man was he? And why did he become so critical to the story of, of, of Turkey over, you know, in, in the 1920s and beyond? Yeah, I mean, he is, I, I think, some very much a mythic figure. And, and I use this term because so much of his life now is memorialized in a way that uh, he has become larger than life. You know, in fact, you know, one could say that he's something of a, you know, of the talisman of what is today the Republic of Turkey. You know, but if we're going to talk about, you know, the real Mustafa Kemal, one, I think, in short, gets the sense that, you know, he is a person born rather humble, you know, kind of circumstances, you know, somebody who came from a rather modest family um, from what is today uh, Northern Greece, from the city of Thessaloniki, that he, um, like many young Muslim men, chose public service as a way of not only employment, but upward mobility. We don't get a lot of direct testament from him from the early stages of his life. But among the things that we get a sense of through the course of his, you know, youth, and we get this from, you know, diaries that he, you know, that that he composed during the course of the First World War, is that he was very politically ambitious. And somebody who, you know, was, you know, who saw himself as not only a potential leader, but as a potential reformer. Now, I mean, it's it's somewhat of a mystery, but I think, you know, the, the short of it is, is that, you know, with the beginning of this renewed conflict, uh, Mustafa Kemal, you know, very shrewdly begins to consolidate not only military control over these desperate, uh, of a desperate series of different um, efforts to try to resist allied, um, you know, sort of allied occupation, but he, he assumes political control over it. And he consolidates his position of power you know, by, you know, late 1919, early 1920, and begins to not only sort of direct a campaign, but begin to form a government, a parallel government to that in Istanbul. And it's for this reason that the the capital today of Turkey is in Ankara, because this was his base camp during the course of this conflict, which today is remembered as um, the Turkish War of Independence of 1919 to 1922. And so, you know, his mythos is cemented by the end of the war for the fact that these forces win. And it gives him a great deal of license to cultivate a persona, a persona that is actually very much amplified by the foreign press. And it's with this newfound fame that he he begins to forge for himself this public persona of not just a military leader, but someone who was vibrant, somebody who was insightful, who was intelligent, who was capable and, you know, kind of to return to a trope we, we visited earlier in this program, he seemed in person like the personification of, of something that's not a sick man, right? That he sort of is a foil to this idea of the Ottoman Empire as having been old, decrepit, on the verge of death, and instead is this person who was young and vibrant and forward-looking. And so by the time, you know, the war ends and, you know, the elected body that comes associated with his government, the Turkish, which is called the the Turkish Grand National Assembly, which still reigns over Turkey today, by the time this body um, dissolves the Ottoman Empire, he places himself in the position to become president 
of you know what becomes the Republic of Turkey. And so the war in the long run becomes you know the kind of the foundation for his legitimate claim to not only govern Turkey but to reform it. And it's that mythos that still remains so important to Turkish identity today, Turkish politics, you know, even the sort of being of Turkey. And so, you know, in that respect, you know, this period is really fundamental to not only who he is, but what Turkey is today. Finally, Ryan, how how is the Ottoman Empire remembered today in 2022 by those people who who live in its former land? What would you say his legacy is among the people who of you know Southeast Europe, uh, Western Asia? I mean, I, the short of it is, is it's polarized, you know, I, and, you know, there's a longer story to be told about what the Ottoman legacies mean within Turkey today, for example, you know, but, you know, it was only really in the 1950s, you know, or thereabouts that the bitter memories associated with this period of time, you know, begin to dull and a more, you know, kind of romantic um, impression of the Ottoman Empire begins to you know, begin to percolate within Turkish society. You know, that today, you know, the, the Ottoman Empire is often associated with, you know, kind of with, with grandeur, you know, with greatness, especially, you know, kind of, you, know, you asked at the very beginning, the issue of, you know, when was the Ottoman Empire zenith? Well, when people, when Turks today most often think of the Ottoman Empire, they think of that, that period of time. They think about an empire that was large, that was powerful, you know, was a sort of a center of politics and economy and so on. But it also in Turkey has a kind of still a very a kind of partisan resonance in that, you know, aspects of the Ottoman Empire you know, today is especially romanticized among conservatives, especially religious conservatives. And while, you know, religious conservatives sort of look at it as a kind of paragon of Islamic greatness and also Islamic virtue, um, a lot of secularists or Kemalists, you know, sort of see the very end of it as kind of the root, still very much as the root cause of a lot of the troubles that not only beset the Ottoman Empire, but really kind of lie at the base of Turkey today and, and and hold it back. Now, beyond Turkey, it's a much more of a sordid issue that both as a result of popular memory, that is, you know, kind of the, the memories of individuals who can chase their personal lineage back to the time of the Ottoman Empire, their relatives, you know, their really great, you know, great grandparents, great great grandparents, and so forth. But also as a result of government education, the Ottoman Empire is remembered almost uniformly as a time of darkness, as a time of occupation, as a time of oppression. Now, you know, Ottoman historians look at the long evolution of the Ottoman Empire um, as a time of, you know, as as a period in which, you know, people throughout the Ottoman lands actually worked to build the empire and make Ottoman society. And that to call it a time of occupation or a kind of uniform uniform time of oppression is, is a little bit of an overstatement. But where this, you know, this impression is really focused upon is on these final years, because this is a time, you know, the, the time of the First World War, the immediate aftermath in the 1918 to 1922 period in particular, is a time of such violence. Right. And it's a time of such disillusionment that, you know, peoples throughout, you know, the, the Arab Middle East, you know, you know, people, you know, of Armenian descent, you know, people um, living in Greece today and other portions of the Balkans 
project upon the whole of Ottoman history the bitterness and the, the destruction of this period of time as if it typifies the overarching legacy of the Ottoman Empire. That was Ryan Gingeras. The Last Days of the Ottoman Empire is published by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.